0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, we need to talk about Bob. Two Bobs, actually. Bob Iger, the former and now current CEO of Disney, and Bob Chapek, the man Iger handpicked as his replacement, who then flamed out and was fired by the board, only to be replaced by Bob Iger, Bob's man. The thing about this entire debacle is that the heart of it is like pure decoder bait. Iger ran Disney as a series of divisions. Studios like Marvel had a degree of autonomy with their own profit and loss statements, the whole thing. Chapek came in and switched up the org chart. He tried to structure Disney more functionally, like a tech company, in order to support the Disney Plus streaming product. The biggest move he made was having all of those independent studios report to a single executive named Kareem Daniel and centralizing a lot of their decisions. Needless to say, this completely backfired. It resulted in tons of unhappy Disney creatives and generally caused Disney's board to lose faith in Chapex's ability to manage the company through the shift to streaming. A shift that is costing billions, even while competitors like Netflix are refocusing their investors around revenue and profits. Now you see what I mean about DecoderBate? The heart of this whole thing is a story about how to structure a company like Disney. Then you add in the complexity of the shift to streaming, the future of TV and movies generally, and the gigantic reputation of a character like Bob Iger, who many people think could plausibly run for president. There's just a lot going on here. Whenever I need to talk about Disney, media, and Bob's, I only call one person. Julia Alexander, director of strategy at Parrot Analytics and a former reporter here at The Verge. Julia pays a lot of attention to the streaming giants, and she's sourced inside all of the companies battling for our attention. She has a lot to say about the Bobs. Okay, Julia Alexander, here we go. Julia Alexander, you are the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics. You are also one of my very favorite... Verge expats, welcome back to Decoder.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, you're here because whenever there's a situation with the Bobs at Disney, I call you. You're the you're the person I call to understand what what happens in the mind of Bobs. And there's quite a lot going on with the Bobs at Disney lately. On November 20th, Disney's then CEO Bob Chapek was let go in what appears to be a frenetic rush. The dude had a Bad earnings call. He surprised everyone by being a little too casual about losing a bunch of money. 12 days later, he's iced. Former CEO Bob Iger, who was the CEO from 2005 to 2020, legendary CEO, bought Marvel, bought Fox and all this stuff. He's back now. He was supposed to be gone. He was supposed to be running for president. And he's back, but he said, I'm going to be back for two years and then I'm going to find a successor for real this time. What on earth is going on here?
2: There's a couple of different things happening at once. So if we go back to 2019, before the pandemic, before Bob Iger steps down, when there are some succession talks happening, but the main thing that's happening at Disney is the release of Disney+. Plus. This is the project that has... Been labeled as the most important of Bob Iger's tenure as CEO. And to your point, this is a guy who oversaw the acquisitions of Marvel and Fox and Lucasfilm and a bunch of other big things, including Pixar, going back to his days with Steve Jobs. All of this is happening, and this is a very crucial moment for Disney entering the next phase of direct-to-consumer technology, of direct-to-consumer relationships, of the next stage of entertainment. And so Disney is on the precipice of trying to figure out how to go from being a legacy media company of yesteryear into a legacy media company of tomorrow. And so as this is happening, Bob Iger is focusing all his attention on here, and this is the future of what's going to happen. Fast forward to 2020, he decides to step down just before the pandemic really takes off, and he promotes Bob Chapek, who is at this time the head of Parks. Um, He's kind of a, a, a lesser known executive within the company, but he's kind of got this energy about him that's like, well maybe he'll be good. He's not exactly an Iger, but he he's not anyone he's not he's not controversial anyway. He might be able to lead this company. He's kind of focused on data. He seems like a guy who could do it. He's got experience within the entire company for the most part. As a result of this, a few key people at Disney leave, including Kevin Mayer, who is the head of streaming, who many people thought would be the successor to Bob Iger.
1: I mean, he was the favorite from what I could tell.
2: Yeah, he was kind of the Prodigal Prince, as I like to refer to him, right? it, It was him who was kind of the idea of if Disney is going to be a streaming company, and this is key to this whole conversation, if Disney is going to go from being a studio company and a TV company to a streaming company, having him in place is really key from an organizational standpoint. Towards the end of the year, you also see the exit of Alan Horn. Alan Horn, who Iger brought over from Warner Brothers back in 2006, 2007, I believe, he's the guy who ran a bunch of the studios. He was the guy who understood how to make things work theatrically. He was the go-to creative at the company. So these guys leave, and then you have Bob Chapek in place. And Bob Chapek decides two things. One, he's going to really lean into streaming as the future because there's this huge moment of acceleration from the pandemic. I know you guys love to talk about acceleration on this podcast. This (laughs) moment of, like, everyone's looking and saying, wow, consumer behavior is really changing. Let's lean into it. So that happens. Two, Bob Chapek feels like he needs to prove himself Against Bob Iger. So he does a very important thing. He increases the subscriber growth for the street by not just tripling it, by quadrupling it. Instead of 60 to 90 million subscribers by the end of 2024, as Bob Iger wanted, Bob Chapek says we're gonna hit 230 million to 260 million Disney Plus subscribers in the same period. And three, Wall Street loses its mind. The pandemic pull forwards start to really come through. And then all of a sudden, everything that makes sense about streaming when Bob Iger was leaning into it no longer makes sense by the time that Bob Chapek leaves.
1: So this is a big theme that we are seeing across the media and tech ecosystem right now. The pandemic happens. Everyone's at home. All of our behaviors shift. We're watching more stuff at home. We're ordering more food at home. We're shopping more at home. The tech industries and the media industries really believed that that was permanent that these were huge shifts that they could invest in and build on, because why would you ever go back to the theater if you can just stream the movies at home? Why would you ever go to a store if you could just buy stuff at home? And now it seems like that reckoning is coming for everyone, right? Meta has a so that really the first time in its history, and Mark Zuckerberg is saying, whoops, e-commerce isn't what I thought it would be. Also, Apple screwed up my business with these privacy changes. And we're kind of seeing it at Disney, too, right? Bob Checkup makes this huge bet on streaming subscribers going up And at the end of the road, that'll turn into money and a durable business. And in fact, it is not a durable business and the numbers aren't going up as fast as they can. And he's pissed off all the creatives at Disney. Is that kind of the big picture that he just bet on a change that didn't come true?
2: I think you have to go even a little bit further back. You know, the start of this whole story begins not necessarily with Bob Chapek taking over the streaming business from Bob Iger who launches it. It really comes into play with Bob Iger looking at Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos at Netflix and saying this content that we are licensing to Netflix at a very healthy revenue, like Disney was being paid for what they were doing. But, you know, you've heard Bob Iger say this in multiple media appearances since, you know, within his brief retirement when he says things like, we were licensing weapons to like third world countries. It's kind of how he refers to this idea of this deal with, with Netflix that he had going on. And so what happens with Netflix is kind of what happens if we look at that fang grouping that Wall Street really loves, right? So Facebook, now Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Everyone points to Netflix and says, look at the subscriber growth and look at the profit that they're making. How can we get into this? Not taking a second to realize that a company that operates at that level and can say, well, we're going to revolutionize entertainment, no advertisements, none of these big things, no theatricality because we're growing every single quarter, can only say that from a place of true and absolute monopolization, right? Can only say it from a place of like, hey, we're the only person here and all of our would-be competitors are now our partners. Uh, And so then those partners become competitors, including Disney. So fast forward to where we are now, when Wall Street's kind of looking at that in the past, subscriber growth was all that mattered. It was like, cool, you're growing, you're growing, you're growing. So Disney and all these other companies were saying, well, look, people are super into streaming. We think that's where it's going to go. And they're not wrong. That is where the industry is headed. So they're, it's not like people are going to turn back to cable and linear anytime soon. So they go, we're going to really double down on this. The issue that happened was they looked at a very... I don't want to say tampered with, but it it was not a great data pool to look at to make permanent decisions on. Because when we look at the data of the last two years, it is based on unprecedented events like the pandemic creating behavior that is responding to that, that is happening at a very fast moment, but is not necessarily permanent. A great example being theatricality. People stopped going to theaters when there was a pandemic. That makes sense. Now people are starting to go back to theaters because the pandemic is, (laughs) you know, quote unquote, slowing down. That also makes sense. And so what happens is you have a guy who quadrupled his guidance to the street and then each quarter said no we're sticking by our numbers we're not going to do anything just to make you think that we're not going to note those numbers. So he has to increase prices to bring up the revenue to cover the cost of the content that he's investing in to make sure that those numbers are being hit. He has to bring in advertising tiers to a tier, so try and expand the total addressable market to bring consumers in. And he has to do all these different things that Iger would not have done in order to kind of hit this goal of, as we stand right now, adding between 8 to 10 million subscribers per quarter over the next eight quarters to hit those goals. This creates a moment of excess spending on content to reach those goals at the sacrifice of subscriber revenue at a time when Wall Street goes, okay, we no longer care about subscriber growth because we're seeing what's happening with all these other streaming services. Now we want to know if you're profitable or if you're going to be profitable. What is your revenue? And that is where Bob Chapek, as a leader, could not instill confidence in investors in the street, whereas Bob Iger may have.
1: I want to get to how Bob Iger is going to instill confidence in his investors, that he's going to return Disney to a path of... Real profitability, because I think the changes he might have to make to do that are also pretty big and might mirror some of the stuff JPEC would do. We'll come to that in a minute. I just want to focus on the numbers here right now. So the initial guidance that Iger gave when he was CEO and was launching Disney Plus was 60 to 90 million subscribers by 2024. When JPEC took over, he upped that by a huge number. He went from 60 to 90 to 230 to 260 million subscribers by 2024. So this massive increase more than double the, the previous guidance. At the same time Netflix is saying stop looking at our subscriber numbers, start looking at our profit. That's a big shift. It seems like Netflix realized Disney was going to play its game and decided to play a different game.
2: It's two-pronged. One, it's the same thing that if you remember okay. Neil I, at some you know back A few years ago, the biggest criticism that Netflix got from reporters and from analysts was they didn't know how shows and movies were performing. Netflix didn't release numbers. And so Netflix's answer to this finally was to say, okay, we're going to publish our top 10. Every single week, here's our top 10 movies and TV shows in English-speaking and non-English-speaking, also a very key decision globally, and here's the hours viewed. The only reason they did it was because they know they're the only company that can boast those types of hours. (laughs) So now there's pressure if on Disney and HBO Max and Peacock and Paramount, Plus and Amazon Prime Video to release those similar numbers, knowing that they're never going to reach that. So they're never going to do it. So it makes Netflix look good and they get better press out of it. Same as the reason that they're doing it with non-English speaking titles, they get to say, look, we have a global audience. No one else can say that at that level at this point in time. So that's part of it. The second thing, though, is if you speak to people who are kind of involved with the numbers at Disney when they were looking at what to up those subscriber numbers too, there were a lot of people in the room and outside the room who are former Disney executives who said, I don't understand why you would triple or quadruple that count based on data that we know is not necessarily going to hold. We know that this is accelerated data. We know that we're not going to continuously add 15 million subscribers every single quarter because eventually two things are going to happen. One, you're going to hit saturation in certain countries like the United States and Canada, which is kind of the key market that we're seeing saturation in. And two, you're going to run out of countries to launch in. This is the issue that we don't really talk about enough with earnings. When we talk about when we, we compare these companies, Netflix no longer has countries to launch in. They, they don't have an, an easy two, three million people to say yes, we're yeah. going to be there, and then you can come on. Disney still does, but it's running out of its room. So all these things combined, you know, when Bob Chapek is looking at what he can do, this is part of the reason, in my opinion, that he doesn't make a great leader. And this is why he loses some of the confidence. Instead of saying, we're going to pivot our strategy, we're going to try to determine how we can lower costs to then increase revenue so we can cover our overhead and then really figure out a way to expand in years to come, but make it sustainable. He keeps on pushing into this kind of stubbornness. He keeps saying, we're going to really hit these numbers. That's our whole goal. When you have, the chief financial officer, Christine McCarthy, and others saying, I don't know if this is necessarily the best case scenario. It's been reported by you know, publications like The Journal and, and Bloomberg. You know, it's not necessarily what they're going to do. And the other thing, too, to point out about Disney and Netflix, because it's almost like comparing apples to kumquats, right? It's, <laughs> it's Netflix gets to say, we're no longer going to give guidance on subscriber growth because we're focusing on revenue. Because again, like the top 10, they're the only company that can't. They're the only profitable streaming service. So they can say, yeah, we're gonna focus on revenue. It's only gonna increase with our ad tier because we're charging $60 CPMs. Like we're in a really great position. We have a huge base. Um, So we're gonna focus on that. And that makes the street then ask everyone else, well, what's your revenue? So all these other companies are still focusing on catching up to Netflix's subscribers. They're spending more than they're making on these streaming services for the most part. And now Netflix is pressuring these companies to go, yeah, but what is your revenue? Because that's what they're telling the street. And Disney, under Chapek was not likely to address that very well. Under Iger, who's much more in tune with understanding what the street wants and how to be not just a great leader as a business person, but also as a politician and as a figurehead in many ways, can really navigate that anxiety and that stress in a better way than Chapek could have.
1: How many subscribers does Disney Plus have right now? Uh,
2: just under 165
1: million. And Netflix here says 223 million. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty significant gap. But as you point out, Netflix is out of countries to launch in. They're kind of out of people, right? There's only 300 million people in the United States, but there's 8 billion people in the world. It seems like there's a lot more people they could go address, but they have to become a very different kind of company or service that maybe has never existed before. Like a global media company at that scale has maybe never existed before. Is this the cap? 250, 300 million people?
2: Well, the first thing on the Disney number that we have to address is, although that is global, they do triple count subscriptions in the United States. And if so, what that means is if you sign up for the Disney bundle you're then counted as three separate subscribers to Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+. So even if you never use Disney+, Plus or you never use Hulu you're, still, Hulu, you're still counted as a subscriber to those streaming services. If we assume that based on last earnings and based on reporting that the Disney bundle makes up 40% of the subscriber base in the United States, it's a significant number that's being triple counted. So take that into account. That's one issue that we have to put a big asterisk over. But two, you know, the question about capping is one that comes up a lot. There was a a lot of analysts back in the day who thought that Netflix could reach 100 million domestically basically by this time. Basically by this time they'd have 100 million. I think in the United States they have about 73 million subscribers. My estimate is they can cap it probably around 90 million over the next five years is what they'll kind of hit. This doesn't mean that it can't expand. It just means that linear has declined slower, ironically than a lot of people anticipated. The linear business is still healthy. People are still holding on to it. To Netflix at priced at 15. 50 is on the expensive side now. So you're losing customers who might come back with the advertising tier, as well as new customers in general who come on with an advertising tier. Um, and three, the type of content that they're creating, you know, Netflix likes to think about taste clusters and to differentiate that for people who aren't aware, an audience demographic is like people between 18 to 49 who watch this one thing. A taste cluster is like an 80 year old in Germany and a 17 year old in Florida who watched the same thing. That's a taste cluster. And 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 so they'll appeal to thousands of different taste clusters to try and find different content that works. Netflix's strategy really works with certain taste clusters, not others. So they're trying to figure out how to expand there. They're trying to figure out how to decrease the amount of content spending by focusing on international content to bring domestically. That's where Netflix is focused. Disney is still trying to figure out how to get to 73 million subscribers domestically. They're sitting at about 44 million subscribers domestically, 45 million, right? So that's still a huge gap that they have to find out. And the issue with Disney and this is where Iger and JPEG, I think, are also going to split, although not as far as people may have thought, is that they have to expand beyond Star Wars and Marvel. It's not that people have run out of interest in those things, but you've captured that audience. People are interested in Marvel and Star Wars, Princesses, they have Disney Plus. Families <laughs> have Disney Plus. They're already there. So, Chapek's solution to this was bringing in more R-rated content. It was bringing in stuff like potentially like horror movies. It was bringing in content that people were not associating with with Disney Plus. This is something that has worked for Disney. It worked in July 2020 when they brought Hamilton over. Hamilton led to a huge bump in subscribers for Disney Plus. But more specifically, it led to a huge bump in subscribers from like non Disney people. So it made them more valuable. Any media company or first to customers is kind of. Um, high value, low value, depending on engagement and depending on retention. If they are low engagement and you manage to engage them, then that's a high churn risk subscriber and therefore it's a more valuable product than if you put out a show like Wednesday and it has huge overlap with Stranger Things, that audience is pretty active on Netflix. They're not gonna go anywhere. So if you put out a new Star Wars show and the Star Wars audience engages, not super valuable. Like you're keeping them there, but at, at, a, at a pretty high cost. If you put out a Hamilton and it brings in a huge number of subscribers on top of the Star Wars people, now you've got a, a really valuable product. The issue with Disney Plus and a bunch of other streaming services is that if you add a Hamilton within 30 days, people who came in for that no longer have anything else to watch. And so they're kind of, they dip. This is why they push the bundle more than anything else. It's The idea is you can go to Hulu afterwards, yeah. but without the interoperability with those services, it gets really complicated because you have to get people to open up another app, and that that's a whole situation. Uh, so with Disney, the issue that they need to figure out to grow their subscriber base, to increase that TAM, is they need to find content that, under Iger, relates to the Disney brand. So it's still Disney-branded safe, but expands beyond what people think of when they think of Disney right now, which is like Star Wars and Marvel. and so. Iger will go about that with I think international content I think he'll, he'll go about that with uh maybe some acquisitions I think he'll go about that by finding ways to bring in a, a new audience that is not necessarily kids focused or family focused but is still brand safe versus JPEG really I think was going to lean into well what works for us on Hulu and what can we bring into Disney plus
1: I want to talk about Hulu and Disney+, and how I think they're destined to merge one day. But first, we need to take a break. And when we come back, we have to talk about what Bob Chapek did to Disney's org chart. Stick around.
3: Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review, the leading destination for smart management thinkers. You're a business leader, which means you have to deal with several different issues week after week. Look, it can be tough being the one calling the shots, but the Harvard Business Review can be a good place to help lighten the load on your shoulders. There's a lot of great stuff you can find at hbr.org, but for just $10 a month, you can get access to unlimited content, including insider newsletters, case studies, and the HBR mobile app. I had a chance to check out hbr.org, and let me tell you, the articles and case studies are very enlightening. Plus, you'll find podcasts, case studies, videos, newsletters, so much more. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code DECODER right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org subscriptions, enter promo code DECODER to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves Hims knows how you feel which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men the entire process is 100 percent online so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's him slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate restrictions apply see hims.com slash decoder for details and important safety information subscription required price varies based on product and subscription plan we're back
1: so it's decoder we have to talk about the thing that jpeg did and the thing that Iger is in the process of undoing which is restructuring Disney's org chart. And that seems like the crime. Yeah. Like if I was to point at something that was the the crime that got Bob Chapek fired, it's not over-promising the board a subscriber number. CEOs do that all the time. It's not mishandling an earnings call. CEOs do that all the time. It's instituting an org chart reshuffle that everyone hated and the company basically mutinied against to kick him out Because that's the thing that created the no confidence. Explain what he did to reorganize Disney.
2: So the way that Disney worked beforehand... This actually goes back to pre-Iger. So when Michael Eisner was CEO. This is, great. This is why you're on the show. <laughs> when Michael Eisner was CEO, he had this kind of strategic committee. It, it kind of sat atop all of these different creative directors who oversaw whatever it was, ABC, who oversaw Disney Studios. And the strategic committee could kind of determine the final say for a lot of different projects. Not necessarily green lighting, but you know, from a investment perspective, here's how much money you're gonna get to spend on this thing. When Iger came in, he realized that while this kind of worked for Eisner, it really lowered morale with his big creative directors who were overseeing the things that were making the content, which is the heart of Disney. And so Iger gave P&L, so he gave this ability to kind of take a budget, so you could greenlight and you can control where it was being distributed, you can control the budget for stuff, and he gave it back to the creative directors. And why is this important in an industry like Hollywood? Decisions were not necessarily made on data, they were made on dinners and lunches and breakfasts. It was all handshakes, and I know this person, and I really like this person, and we're just going to make a deal. That often requires making last-minute budgetary decisions. Uh, I'm going to give you an extra week to do this shoot because you think you're going to do something. I really uh, believe in this project. So although we don't necessarily have the budget for it, we're going to figure out how to do it. We're going to pick it up. I really believe that we need to go 10% above budget for this because we're competing with HBO for this project and we really wanna do it. So Iger gave that ability back to his director. So that includes, you know, Dana Walden, who's over at um, Disney General Entertainment with, with Disney TV, uh, Kevin Feige at Marvel, Kathleen Kennedy at Disney, all that stuff. As they were moving more into streaming, and this is where a lot of things kind of change. I think this is where Bob Chapek doesn't necessarily get maybe some credit that he, he deserves. Iger and Kevin Mayer also were into the idea of changing things up slightly. It wasn't that they were going to take away that control from the directives, but when you looked at Disney+, Plus, the idea was you have Kevin Mayer's kind of overseeing it, and every different vertical would kind of be given slots. The idea was like, okay, Marvel, you get four slots, Star Wars, you get three slots. Disney, I don't care what goes there. It can be a movie, it can be a TV show, it can be an animated special. I don't care what it is, but you have to fill those slots, and that's how we're going to kind of figure things out. So the idea was like, you still give the creative directors control, but some of the distribution changed. Some of it was like, you have to put some. Stuff here. By the time that Chapek comes in, Chapek does this very McKinsey style move where he goes, okay, first we're going to reorg everyone. We're going to put everything under a, a section called Media Entertainment Division. So that's, what they, that's what they called it. And so it was DMED. And it re- everyone reports this guy named Kareem Daniel. Kareem Daniel had no experience in content, <laughs> no experience in distribution, no experience in streaming. He came from parks and Consumers uh, experiences. He was JPEG's right-hand guy. So all of a sudden, you've got people who have been controlling their budget, their, their distribution, everything that they were doing, their relationships for 15 years. They've been controlling it, now reporting to a guy who they maybe have never interacted with, uh, who's now going to make all these big, big decisions about where something's going to go. And so people are frustrated. You hear reports and I talk to people all the time who lost out on deals because they couldn't get an an offer back in time because they had to go to Kareem and his team and figure out if that was something they're going to do. They felt like they were being treated like little kids. They felt like they no longer were in control of what they were very proud of being able to, to create at Disney. All of which lowers morale. All of which leads to people potentially looking elsewhere, and people being very upset, and and leads to misdirects in terms of the content. This is why you hear stories about why did this movie, maybe this Pixar movie, whatever, go to Disney Plus and not go to theaters? Why did this TV show go here and not over here? That is a DMED situation. That is someone is deciding where they're going to go and how much money they're going to put into it instead of the actual creative teams. One of the biggest advantages Iger has over Chapek is that Iger is someone who comes across like the business is supplementary to the art. Chapek is someone who comes across as the artist supplementary to the business. That does not imply that Bob Iger is not good at business. He's clearly proven that. And it is not to imply that Bob Chapek does not like movies. It is to suggest that when you are running a Hollywood company, especially Disney, which is famous for its parks and kids running up to hug a Mickey Mouse, you need to be a, a guy who comes across as, yes, the art is far more important than the business. The business supplements it. The irony in Wall Street really not liking Chapek is that he's the most Wall Street type guy. Like, he, he's a guy who looks at data, looks at finances, and says, like, this is how we're going to cut different things in order to kind of make up the losses here and whatnot. But in doing so, he alienated every core executive at Disney and lost the trust of the board and the street in the process.
1: So let me make the argument for the DMED restructure. I don't think it was a good idea, but let me make the argument for it. There's only two structures for a company. We talk about them in Decoder all the time. We talked about them uh, with the CEO of Bose last week. It comes up all the time. You can have functional companies where all the functions are centralized under the CEO and they're expressed out. Apple is the most famous functional company of all time. Or you can have a divisional company where Marvel is a division of Disney and Lucasfilm is a division of Disney, there's redundancy in those decisions, right? They have their own accounting and finance and whatever, but because they're able to make decisions faster, the efficiency overcomes the redundancy. They have their own P&Ls. They generate the profits to cover up for the fact that they have these redundant functions inside of each division. This is the general theory. And you would say, if you're Bob Chapek and Kareem Daniel, okay, we are now a consumer company. We sell a product called Disney+. Plus. Everything should be subservient to that product, and we should make decisions of that product in mind. So we're going to centralize our decision-making, and the creatives should just worry about creative. They should not be making deals. They should be making great Star Wars movies. They don't need to be going out and selling things to other places or worried about theatrical because what we make here is Disney+. And that's how, like, how a tech company would think about it to some extent. But it seems like that just pissed all the crazy – like you cannot do that to Hollywood. You need to give them the redundancy and measure them on success. It seems like the central lesson here is there's more than one way to make a decision about a company structure.
2: Yes. And the thing is, to Chapek's point or to Chapek's belief, there was kind of this situation in play with Iger, Mayer, and some others who were like, what if we did take away – Not some of the big decisions, but we said, hey, we need you to create for this. So we are kind of suggesting that instead of taking this thing that you might want to take to theaters, we're saying maybe you bring that here and we're going to figure that out. The issue is that instead of propositioning it as like you get to choose what's going to go here and here, but you just have to reach almost like a quota. Like you have to at least give us this amount of things and it has to be between, you know, one film, one animated thing and whatever it might be. They said, no, no, we're going to make those decisions. And what happens is he's not prepared for the fallout that comes from it. A great example is you look on a spreadsheet, right? And this is my favorite thing to talk to like clients about. If you're looking at your spreadsheet, you're just looking at numbers, moving something like a Pixar movie to Disney Plus might make sense. You might say, okay, the value that we're going to get from new subscribers coming in over a specific time period versus and saving on like marketing costs and saving on printing costs that we go to theaters with and taking in between 85 and 100% of those signups versus, you know, like 60% in theaters, whatever it might be, that might make sense to you. Then when you are pummeled by a bunch of headlines that are like, you're devaluing this brand and you have all these animators who are like, here's why it's important that we were in theaters at this time. And you've got agents and other creatives who are saying, yeah, of course this is the issue. Like there's a whole reason that we put stuff in theater sometimes. And obviously we're trying to make money but we make decisions sometimes not just based on finances and revenue. That's really tough for a guy like Bob Chapek who is a data driven guy. Who's a guy who's going like, you know, here's a great example. Disney under him was going to be a streaming company, right? But also, Disney is a parks business. Disney is very much like, here's where we're going to make all our money at the parks. Bob Iger believed that, all, and th- trust me, there were moments where Bob Iger raised prices at Disney at Disney World. <laughs> but Bob Iger believed Disney World should be uh, accessible. You should be able to go to it f- for all different types of uh, prices, depending on how much you can pay. Is it expensive? Yes. But the idea was that that was what's going to happen because Bob Iger believed that although the parks were also generating strong revenue, they did something that uh, is an intangible asset. They built love and adoration. They created intimate memories and intimate experiences cross-generational. So grandpa, mom, kid, all loved it. And they all have these memories together. And that really creates a love expression, a brand for Disney, which helps its uh, revenue Decades down the line, it's it's going to be fine. So he wouldn't do what Chapek did, which is demand for the parks has never been higher. Let's capitalize on it. Let us start selling these different passes so that you can upgrade certain things for a price, which under Iger was free. Let's increase the the price of the parks. Let's increase all these things because there's demand for it. What happened? Revenue for parks went way right up. It's like 42% year over year. It did great. But there was all of this sourness within the community, the creative community, the fan community, the parents who were now like, I don't, it's, this is getting so much more expensive. And so that adoration gets dinged. And the thing I always like to compare it to. Is when you look at Warner Brothers Discovery, it is the idea of telling Casey Bloys, who's the C- now the CEO and oversees all of HBO, hey, we need you to start thinking about unscripted because we're bringing in TLC content. You can't do that HBO. You can't like that's it, it takes <laughs> it takes thirty years to build up the brand of HBO and and have that that trust from consumers because they really like it. It takes a year to burn it down and then try to build that back up back up again. Disney's in the same position where it's like it takes all this time and effort to really build that up. And a couple decisions that are based purely on revenue because, you know, it's an easy place to build revenue as you're kind of looking over your balance sheet takes away from the longer impact. And I think th- th- this is a situation with the org like that's, a, you know, moving the Imagineers from uh, California to Florida because they got a tax break on it when the Imagineers don't want to leave all of these decisions that Iger is hyper aware of because he's got this really strong emotional intelligence. Chapek doesn't. So when he's doing this reorg, all these things that he's not thinking about, all these decisions that impact the greater culture and then impact the content, which then impacts the community and the audience, he doesn't think about until it's far too late.
1: Would you sum all that up as he was the finance guy to some extent? He was the person in charge of parks. I'm assuming he was like, I can just get money out of the parks whenever I want, and my boss won't let me do it. And then he became the boss and he turned the knob to get all the money out of the parks. There's a sense that he's just an operations person, right? He was handed sort of a finished vision of Disney and he said, okay, here's the vision. It's Disney Plus. I'm going to relentlessly optimize the company for this product without realizing that relentlessly optimizing a company like Disney for profit or efficiency kills the magic of the company itself.
2: Yes, and I would add there's two areas that I think really spell this out. One, I was talking to uh, a Disney exec, and we were talking about a story that was in the Wall Street Journal yesterday the day before about how Bob Chapek had brought in McKinsey to kind of look over how he could do this reorg, and that's what really angered creatives.
1: The angels of death.
2: The angels of death, yeah. And, and the thing he said to me that I thought was interesting was not that he had brought McKinsey in, this executive I talked to. He said... We'd never use McKinsey. We haven't used McKinsey in 12 years. If we use anyone, it's BCG, and we don't even really use them. He's like, like, which doesn't sound like a huge deal, except from a cultural perspective. It's like what we've always done and what we've kind of relied on. And he's like, and the part of the reason that we don't bring in McKinsey and BCG is often is because we came from them. So like we know similar, (laughs) like we can kind of give you similar ideas of what they would be doing. So for him to bring in McKinsey kind of speaks to this outsider kind of status of like this operations guy, this finance guy. Who's like? I'm going to go to the best consultancy group in the world, who you know has this very yes to your point like very notorious brand, uh, and we're <laughs> going to bring them in and try to and try to fix the creative side of things, which doesn't always work. So I think one that that's one issue is that when you look at it, but two, I think what we often forget is when Bob Iger stepped down. One, he didn't really step down, right? He stepped up. He gave. Bob Chapek, the title of CEO, and then he made himself chairman. And so he's like, you're reporting to me. And so I'm still overseeing it. But what we also forget is he made himself chief creative officer. Like Bob yeah. Iger was like, I'm going to oversee creative. We brought in this amazing Parks guy to do with all the stuff I don't want to do, which is effectively what Iger said publicly. He was like, I don't want to go to earnings calls anymore. I don't want to be in these meetings. Like I'm bored of it. I want to go hang out with celebrities and like respect. do cool creative stuff. Full respect. Yes. Huge mood. Huge mood. It's incredible. When you look at Bob Chapek, he's a great operations guy if you have someone like an Iger. And I think this is the greater conversation about Disney, right, as we kind of step into it. Bob Iger is in a position where he has two years, so he says. Bob Iger retiring is kind of like Tom Brady retiring. It's like Cher's Farewell Tour. You're kind of like, ah, like how many times do you do this? I would point out,
1: actually, Julia and I text about football like every week. (laughs) Like, Brady's not having a great season. He should have stayed (laughs) retired.
2: This is what it will follow up in like six months and we'll just do a whole Brady Iger episode. But um, so he comes back. He has two years to pick his successor. One, he can't leave that blemish on his legacy. Every executive you ever meet uh, is obsessed with their legacy. So he can't leave that blemish on it. Two, he's got to course correct what he's been doing. So he has two years to find his next successor. The issue that we saw, right, when the board was trying to find someone who wasn't Iger is there's all, there's very few people who can do the job of running Disney. And so when we look at what the best options are, ironically, if we look at Disney years ago, it's Roy Disney running it alongside Walt Disney, right? It's You have an operations guy and a creative guy. And I think the best modern example of this today is Netflix. You have Reed Hastings, who's very good at operations. And then you have Ted, Ted Sarandos, who's very good at the creative stuff. And you have them run it side by side. And I think with Disney... And Iger specifically, Iger and chapek made sense. It was like, you have a guy who wants to do the operations stuff. You have a guy who's doing the creative stuff and they can talk about why something like DMED would not work. I think if you remove Iger from that situation and you give chapek now control over some of the creative stuff, you have an operations guy who brings in McKinsey to make decisions that affect what happens with Frozen. And it just doesn't make much sense.
1: Let's talk about what Iger might do now because chapek is out. Kareem Daniel is out. He said DMED is going away. The centralized functional structure is going and he's going to return power to his studio heads. He's still like investigating that though, right? He didn't, he didn't come back and say it's going back to how it was. He came back and said, here's a new committee that will investigate a new structure. And then uh, people made I think the normal assumptions you would make, which is it will look more like it did before, but he hasn't said he's going all the way. What do you think he's going to actually do?
2: Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think there's a lot of people, including Wall Street, who rejoiced at Iger coming back. And I think he's the right choice for CEO at this moment in time for Disney. But it's not like he's going to come in and all everything's fixed. Everything is good to go. So from a reorg standpoint, he gets rid of DMED, cream Daniels out. He gives some power back to his creatives. But I do think we get back to what him and Mayer kind of started doing in 2019, which is you have full control over where things are going. But- we have to focus on Disney Plus from a revenue standpoint. So if you think there's a title, you have to look really carefully at this. If you think this title is at a higher risk of losing money, like A Strange World, right, which which just came out and is going to lose a lot of money for Disney, should that movie have gone to Disney Plus? And if so, how could we have made it for a little bit cheaper? How could we ensure that it has the best successful chance that it can on Disney Plus? You know, versus, okay, this type of movie that we know for sure is going to work at an, for a theatrical audience when theatrical attendance is still down about 30 35% compared to 2019, right? All these things are happening. I think those decisions are going to get a lot more tight, even under Iger, because they have to. They can't step back from Disney+. They're in a really great position. and Disney+, is not floundering. It's an expensive thing, but it's not floundering. And so you have to kind of corral your your creative directives to think about this mothership product while they're thinking about other stuff. So while we'll go back to what it kind of looked like, I do think the belt will tighten more than some people might be expecting, but I think Iger, again, is a great communicator. I think he's someone who can communicate this. I think he can make the creatives feel like they're not losing something even if they are. I think he can make it seem like, "Hey, this is something that we have to do to make sure that we as a business keep going as our investors and our shareholders are inv- are looking at us." So I think it I think it looks similar to what it looked like in 2019, but with a centralized focus on Disney Plus that doesn't take things away from creatives. It just gives them Quote is a terrible word, but I think it's kind of like, hey, you have to provide this amount of things for this in order for us to make sure that Disney Plus is chugging along.
1: We have to take one more break, but when we come back, Julie and I talk about how distribution impacts what creatives
4: actually make. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the Internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop, Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever too, online or with their in-person point of sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: We're back. One of the themes we come back to over and over again on Decoder when we talk about creative companies, music, movies, whatever, is that your distribution funnel has a direct impact on what you make. It is maybe the the biggest influence on the creative itself. I'll give you, in particular, the example of YouTube. You reported for years on YouTube at The Verge. The way the YouTube algorithm worked had a direct effect on what YouTubers woke up and did every day. That's just distribution controlling the creatives. Here, you just said something really interesting, which is if you think it's not going to do well, maybe put it on Disney Plus and make it for cheaper. And that seems like the streaming trap, right? If I look at the quality of a Netflix show, yes, the expensive ones are expensive, but the middle ones, they look like Netflix shows. I feel like I should disclose that. I'm the EP of a Netflix show called The Future of, which is great, and you should watch it on Netflix. But you know what I mean. Like that you can. There's a vibe around a streaming show on a Netflix or a Hulu that isn't the vibe around a show on HBO, that isn't the vibe around a big theatrical movie. And that is kind of just budgetary in its way. It's kind of just we know people are going to be on their phones when they watch it, so we might as well stretch this out over 12 episodes instead of eight. That seems like a real force in the streaming world. How does Iger overcome that? When he's like, okay, here's the thing that we make, but I can't destroy the brand and the quality of the product that we're known for.
2: I mean, this is the difficult line that no one has figured out. And for anyone, to any company to claim otherwise would be untrue. So if we look at Netflix, only because they've been doing this the longest and and they've been doing it the most investment. If we look at Netflix when they have a movie like The Gray Man, which is that $200 million Russo Brothers movie that came out that movie is subsidized. That movie is never going to make what it should make it if it was in theaters on Netflix. That movie is subsidized by a bunch of 3 to 8 million dollar movies sometimes cheaper that Netflix puts out that has huge audiences. Something like Purple Hearts, right? Which is the, a movie about a woman who falls in love with a marine. Did insanely well for Netflix, but even things like Tall Girl, these, you know, things like To All the Boys I Love Before there are a ton of these movies that get made for Netflix that are really cheap that do extremely well for them and that is how they subsidize these big plays and why are they subsidizing something like the gray man they want franchises they want to be able to sell gray man action figures down the line they want to be able to do all these things so they kind of subsidize these big bets it's why you get a bunch of different looking things. And then they play on the auteur side because they want awards. Awards bring in more talent. Awards bring in more sub- more subscribers. a small amount, but they do bring people in, so et cetera, et cetera. So you kind of get where they're going with this. If you're Disney, vast majority of movies that you're making should go to theaters. Uh, they're, they're, it's just designed to, to do it that way. That said, when you have this Disney Plus platform, what it gives you is the ability to make movies that you are not going to perform in theaters, but you still want to make and they could still find value. So examples are like, you know, a Disney movie that came out years ago called Queen of Katwe. Uh, This movie Disney put out in theaters didn't do well. They kind of knew it wasn't going to do well. If you think about, you know, I have like four different rules for if you put a movie in theaters to like hopefully find an audience. One is, do I have to see this right now? That typically is because spoilers. It's typically because there's a conversation happening. Two, does it take advantage of technology that my really good TV and soundbar at home are not going to give me? This is why dramas have faltered in theaters and sci-fi and everything has gone up. Uh, Three... Do I need to see this with a community? So it's my three, three, three rules. Do I need to see this with a community? So things like horror movies and even comedies to an extent really take advantage of, a, of an audience. So you have a bunch of movies that are not within that, t- typically tend to be dramas, might be a rom-com, that people still want to make. Those types of movies lead to expanding the total addressable market for streaming services like Disney+. Plus. You have a movie that's a big drama that you think... A great example, actually, I did the research on this at my, co- at my company, West Side Story, and this is going to upset a lot of uh, Steven Spielberg fans, (laughs) West Side Story is the type of movie that it should take advantage of of a theater. It's got incredible, it's beautifully shot, it's incredible cinematography. That movie did not do well in theaters, but that movie on Disney Plus would have been a massive get because a ton of people would have signed up. Also, musicals tend to have longer shelf lives on streaming services. We don't know why. It's just our, that's what our data shows. They just tend to have stronger value over time than other things. And so that type of movie released globally around a holiday brings a lot of people, and then you have to have enough content to keep people there. So as you're building things out, there are certain movies where you go, maybe we don't take the risk in theaters. You have to work with the right creative who says, like, yes, I totally get where you're going from, and I want more people to see my, my stuff, so I'm cool with that. And then three you kind of figure out, okay, well, this will help us grow this section of our, of our streaming service, which two years from now is going to be really important. That's what I mean by the types of movies that Disney makes. It's not like Disney should take movies that look like garbage and put them on Disney Plus because that's where they belong. It's figuring out what movies can work for different audiences that aren't going to go to theaters. And the other thing I'll say, a great example of, of what that kind of looks like Is Hocus Pocus 2, which I've deemed like the most, the perfect streaming movie. It is a type of movie that people are going to (laughs) watch. Only on Disney Plus, they'll sign up for it. The hot people come over, especially if you put ads and like in that for some pre-roll ads. Like you're gonna have a huge engagement on it, which Disney saw you're just gonna do well domestically. But that movie was never gonna travel well globally. That movie, Disney's a global uh, theatrical distribution business, so they're not gonna release it. They're gonna lose money if they put that out glo- globally. So instead, they put on Disney Plus and find an audience. The Netflix equivalent to this, as my buddy um, Sunny once said, is these Adam Sandler movies. No one in their right mind would pay to go see those movies in theaters, but they do really well for Netflix. They don't cost that much to make. So, like, that's what I'm saying. To your point, right now, there is a quality discrepancy, absolutely. But I do think it's a matter of not saying we need to make a ton of movies for Disney+, and that's what we're going to do, and they're going to be really bad quality. It's looking at movies that you're already developing, especially if you have Fox and Fox Searchlight, and going, like, Maybe this does better for us on Hulu or Disney Plus than it does in theaters. And we take this as the opportunity to really experiment with it.
1: I feel like when I talk to executives on the show, there's an element of like clinicalness to these decisions. I ask people how to make decisions. I ask them how they organize their companies. And it feels like a lot of what you're saying is there are some objectively right answers about how to structure Disney. But at the end of the day, Bob Iger's got the touch and Bob Chapek didn't. And they are maybe three clicks apart strategically and organizationally from one another. Not very far, but one of them was kind of a blunt instrument. And the other one is a grandpa who people think could be the president of the United States. And that's the whole difference?
2: I think, one, it's not that Bob Iger is necessarily the best CEO in the world. What is happening in the industry right now is this period, I mean, he has said this, it, it is, and I see this with clients that I talk to, it is this period of insane anxiety. People like to compare what's happening with streaming to like when DVDs and VHS started coming out and how that affected theatricality and linear. And I'm, it's nowhere close to that. What we're talking about from an economic model standpoint of entertainment right now with streaming coming in as the next focus of where everything's going is the equivalent to film coming up and being on the stage. And being like, there's this thing happening and the audiences are going elsewhere and there's new technology and we don't know how to support this thing that we're doing because the economics of everything have changed. When you are a person who's leading a company whose biggest asset is your linear networks, and this is something that we haven't really talked about in the podcast yet, but the other issue with streaming is that you've got a lot of companies who are really strong cable and linear businesses who have, you know, 20 to 25 to 30% profit margins now going to a business where the profit margins are, may never reach that uh, and are not going to reach that for any time soon. So you have a lot of Wall Street and, and investors and shareholders who are concerned So what you need on top of a strong business leader, which I think Chapek is, I think for all of all of his issues, I don't think he was a bad operations guy. I don't think he was a bad finance guy. What you need, though, is a CEO who can also be a great figurehead and politician who can say, like, I get that you're having this period of anxiety. I get that this is what's happening. Here's how we're going to change our strategy to meet some of these concerns that we're seeing. Here's why we're really strong believers in what we're doing going forward. You know, here's how we're thinking about all these different avenues. Iger does that even without being at the company. Chapek, again, if you think about him just on his earnings call, right, if you think about his performances – And the one side of things he did wrong, to your point, as we just talked about, is the reorg, and not knowing how to work with your direct reports. On the other end of the situation, though, is the earning situations where you have Bob Chapek leaning into this stubbornness, leaning into the, well, no, my way is right. I had every intention to quadruple our subscriber growth, and and it's going to happen. I'm going to spend, spend, spend at a time when that's a huge concern, but don't worry about it because that's what everyone's doing. At a time when Netflix is going, actually, we're going to show you our... revenue, <laughs> because we think that's what's important, not subscriber growth. You know, all of these things makes him feel like he's not a great figure. He's not a great politician. He can't get people through the economic uncertainty. And that's what you need with, with Iger. So to your point, there's a reason Iger and the board chose JPEG. It's not like he looked at JPEG and was like, oh my God, this came out of nowhere. How could this have happened? But it is that little bit of difference that gets a company through a period of uncertainty.
1: I would just say there's a long history of these visionary CEOs picking the wrong successor. And it feels like that is a huge part of what happened here, that if you're the visionary CEO, maybe the other visionaries around you are more of a threat than you want to admit. And so you end up picking the operations guy who executed your vision and saying, well, he'll just continue executing my vision. And then particularly if you're Bob Iger, the economy changes and the board calls you in a panic and you're like, yeah, I'll come back. It does seem like the pattern of the visionary CEO betting wrong on the operations guy. The exception that proves the rule is Tim Cook, but he is by far the exception that proves the rule. Tim
2: Cook, who also brought in a McKinsey guy and the creatives got very upset about, but uh, fam- famously. <laughs> but um, yes, I also think there is an element and there have been multiple reports about this. No one, you know, it's, it's hard. It's so hard to tell if it's true or not, but there's the element of, was JPEC Bob Iger's first choice or was he the choice that the board also agreed with? You know, the idea that Iger may have wanted a Kevin Mayer, who is one of the smartest st- strategic thinkers around, who was the guy, you know, who was Iger's right-hand man in many, in many ways, who was the guy who oversaw all these major acquisitions, but had this kind of air about him that the board didn't know if if he would work as a leader. He didn't have the operational history that would maybe put him in a good place to be CEO. So you get to a point where maybe your first choice, if you're Bob Iger and your second choice are not, not the choices the board wants, you come to your third choice and you say, okay, yeah, like, I like him. I'm going to stay on as chief creative officer though, because I think there needs to be a period of, of helping him out. And then I feel like this might work. I think that's more in line with what probably happened is you've got, you can't do your first or second choice. You get your third choice. You like the guy, you do believe in the guy, but you're like, he, I need to work with him on certain stuff. By the time you do step down, everything kind of gets thrown into chaos. And now you're watching from the sidelines. Also you've got a huge amount of stock tied up into the company. Right. <laughs> so like you, like there are, these things are happening that are really concerning, but I, I think it's also really hard, you know, when you're a visionary executive to pick someone who you think can do the same thing that you've done. You know, Iger in many ways was the opposite of Eisner. And this is exactly what Disney needed. Cook was the opposite of Jaws. But at the time when Apple really needed, I think that. Like, I think when Apple needed someone to kind of lead them in, 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 into that direction. And at Disney, I don't think they needed a Chapek yet. I think they still needed an Iger. And to replace yourself with a mini you is very difficult if you are exceptionally talented at what you
1: do. Let's talk about that for a minute to wrap up. Iger said he's only on for two more years. You've mentioned Kevin Mayer several times in this conversation. A couple of days ago, I tried to just tell someone else the Kevin Mayer story post-Disney, and I realized it is maybe the most underappreciated, bonkers story in media right now. He left Disney. He was the CEO of TikTok. Donald Trump said he was going to ban TikTok. He stopped being the CEO of TikTok. He started a new company, and now he like runs Reese Witherspoon's Direct to consumer. It's, it's very strange. Is he coming back? Is, is Iger going to buy Kevin Mayer's company? Is he going to find someone else? How does he manage this two year lame duck period where he has promised to appoint a successor?
2: You know, does Disney need Candle Media? Uh, I think Disney would candle like to media own Candle Media
1: is Kevin Mayer's company, by
2: the way. Yes. I think Disney would like to own Coco Melon. I think there's, I think Coco is the kids' brand. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for translating. I just uh, filling in behind you. Yeah, uh, you know, I think Disney... There was a really interesting moment on an earnings call, I think three earnings calls ago, where Bob Chapek said a really... Impactful statement for me. He said, You know, we're really losing out in the preschool space and we're losing out to Netflix. And I said, Wow, Disney's the creator of Mickey Mouse. They're losing out in the preschool <laughs> space? Like, that's wild. And then I was like, I the guess. The next you know, day he
1: was fired. Yeah. Like, I just it, want to point that out.
2: But but I think it was, you know, I think to it, it open my eyes because I was like, I guess they're all losing out to YouTube, right? I guess they, if that's where the kids' content is and they're all trying to figure it out, Netflix figured it out by working with Candle Media on Cocomelon and they kind of brought a bunch of that stuff in. Hulu works with them on other stuff Um, if you're Disney there's a lot happening even including Reese Witherspoon's brand there's a lot happening across all the different companies that Candle Media so Candle Media is backed by Blackstone they buy production companies and studios and then they take that content and they sell it to streamers they're middlemen there's a lot lot of other companies that are doing this Turnin Group which is Peter Chernin's company does similar stuff and so their idea was to bet on all of these different pieces of entertainment across the board that would really help these streaming services if you're Disney, that's not a bad acquisition to have in your pocket. But if the goal is, OK, we're going to sell our company to Disney so that Tom stays and Kevin Mayer, both the former Prodigal princes, both up for CEO, both didn't get it. Then they started this company together, you know, to bring them back in-house. They still don't have the operational experience that the board's going to be looking for. And even with something like Candle Media, which is a startup, so has very few employees, it's not like as CEO of that company for a few years, Kevin Mayer is going to have the experience in running a company like Disney, which is, you know, 18,000 times that that size or whatever it might be. And so I think, you know, you can ask different people in the industry if they think Kevin Mayer is coming back and you get a 50-50 response. It, everyone has their own opinion on, on stuff. I think if Disney wants to declare itself a streaming company, First and foremost, it is a streaming company, and then it has all these other businesses. Kevin Mayer's not a bad bet to have a CEO. If Disney wants to be a company that is a media company where streaming is a core business, but it is a vertical in the same way that Marvel is a vertical of Disney or whatever it might be, then maybe having a guy who's not entirely focused on streaming is your best bet. My recommendation would be to have two CEOs. I would have someone who's got the streaming stuff really figured out, who's got DTC, who understands the technology side of things, who also understands, I'm going to say favorite word on this podcast, potential metaverse side of things, <laughs> who understands no. gaming, who understands how the direct consumer space with games and building that franchise adoration continues, one, and then a chain pack, and then an operations guy, and then uh, uh, someone who, uh, who understands that but also gets creatives. I think you need both. I think you kind of need your future forward-thinking technologist, Jason Kalari, former CEO of Warner Media type, and then someone who's a kind of combo Iger, Ch- Iger Chapek, who's good at operations side things, who can run a business, who understands a business that size, but gets talent. I think that's what you need to run a company like Disney to make it a, a future media company of tomorrow.
1: Well, one, I will point out, that Jason Clarke pissed everyone off as CEO of Warner Brothers by going all in on streaming, uh, and probably ended his career in that company. That's why you need him partnered everyone. with
2: someone. He didn't partnered with someone.
1: Well, he's the he's the creative. And two, I would say the obvious choice here is Julia Alexander. And I've known that you've been angling for this job. You're basically the entire time we've known each other. So if you're listening to this, uh, various Disney board members. Uh, you can contact Julia through us. We'll take a finder's fee. (laughs) That's really what I'm getting at here. Julia, it's amazing to have you on Decoder. I love talking to you every time you come on. Thank you for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again to Julia Alexander for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter, or as long as Twitter lasts. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have discovered, if you tweet at me about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.
3: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work.